today on Rebuilders, we are looking at what, Mark? We are looking at what does it mean to be a Christian in public-facing position at the top of certain industries. Will there be certain industries where it's going to be really hard or if nay impossible to be a Christian? How do we get to this point? Uh, what's the history before it? And where's this all going? We're going to look at that today. It's a great episode and we look forward to sharing it with you. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both today? Doing really well. Thank you. Great. Mark? I'm doing very well. I got a chance to be in Perth, our westernmost city this week, and uh, it was great to meet some listeners out that way. Um, Lots of... uh, uh, comments around our pastries, which is <laughs> yeah. always fun. Mm. So that was that was good. So hello to everyone in Perth. Mm. A little yes. bit of a gripe from this side of the. Oh, a gripe! What I, an excellent uh, word. Yes, I um, I'm away here. Uh, gave Lydia a call. I was like, would you like a pastry? And yes. I said, yes, yes give please. me a pastry. And I was like, I know what Mark likes. He likes his almond croissants. I'm going to grab him one of those. Um, so I, I assumed I assumed your pastry of choice, and mm. then I got myself. Um, what was it like a homemade muesli bar thing quite nice oh you didn't even get yourself a pastry hold on here's where the controversy really no. comes about yes. no 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 yes. no 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 no, 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 no. let he who not eats pastries <laughs> cast the first muesli bar <laughs> <laughs> it was pastry-esque okay no well, not bacon. really there's, there's nothing esque bacon. about mm. it mm. <laughs> hey mate this is rebuilders <laughs> and this is very serious <laughs> i make the rules here <laughs> um, um anyway uh, your sacrilegious side. Yeah. Go on. Brought it in triumphantly, declaring to my fellow podcasters, I have brought, I heralded in. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst wielding your jousting stick. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, like the town crier, I <laughs> <laughs> proclaim the pastries are here. Yeah. Uh, Mark wanders in, <laughs> notices another <laughs> delivery of baked treats, baked treats, donuts. Which aren't from a bakery. They're from the supermarket. They're from the supermarket. Super cheap. I mean, somewhere from the supermarket. Them, somewhere baked them. Or well, actually, deep fried them probably. And Mark, tell 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 me and the people <laughs> which what option did you go for? The the thoughtfully purchased, <laughs> um, historical historically accurate um, representation of your favourite pastry, or the one from the supermarket. That, I'd just like to share with you guys and the listeners of Rebuilders that I, <laughs> earlier today, um, turned down an almond croissant from a very nice bakery and chose a a, a supermarket just chocolate jam donut, which is of a much lower quality. <laughs> um, this has been a really hard time for my family and um, I am ashamed. I know that I can do better. Um, I have been struggling of late and I will be checking into a pastry <laughs> retreat centre and um, th- I'll Wait, see you in a year's time. Stale it. Uh, Three meals a day served at Armour Croissant. <laughs> you will enjoy it. Yeah. Um, it's called a pastry re-education <laughs> retreat. <laughs> well, um, appreciate your, your public apology. Thank you. Um, Daniel, I expect one from you shortly about your muesli choice. No, I stand by it. Interesting. Full confidence in my decision making. But no, Mark, thank you. And if I go and eat the pastry after this, am I redeemed? I, uh, oh, oh. 
I'll think about it. <laughs> You'll hold wow. it over me. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, now that we've got uh, that out of the way, let's go to other scandalous public news. Mm. Um, the well, what we're going to be exploring today was kind of catalyzed by uh, something that's happened more locally here in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, our um, beloved sport, AFL, Australian rules football. football and I say our but I'm I'm it's not really my jam I mean I grew up around a lot of people who played AFL but not really your jam donut it's not really my jam donut or mm. my um almond croissant so did you did you ever play AFL Mark growing up uh, at school yeah okay but not like for a team not for a team yeah. hey no. excuse me I played at school as well okay yeah good on you yeah I played for a team did you yeah I played 10 years did you yeah how did I not know this Fun fact, I used to, I used to, I grew up playing with the now um, captain of the West Coast Eagles. So, really, harkened over to Perth, Perth reference there. There you go. And wow. I, yeah, he he on went on to. Were you heaps better this career? We were pretty good when I was ten. Yeah, I was up there I with see. him, and then mm. he got much better than I did beyond mm. there. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. Well, we're digressing into local <laughs> matters, but yes. it is a local matter, but it is of also significance for our international audience. Yes. Uh, so effectively what happened was there was a person who was appointed as CEO to um, a particular football club. One of our biggest, yeah. Yes. And what ensued from there, Mark? So effectively this person who was a banker um, from leading one of our largest banks um, got a job as a CEO of this football club mm -hmm. and um, that was announced. And then I think it was the next day in the newspaper, effectively two journalists linked him to, you know, how the framed as a controversial church, which is effectively a sort of evangelical church here in Melbourne. And um, a media storm did ensue. As happens, as we've talked about swarms and media before, <laughs> yes. the media swarm swarmed and uh, effectively the long and short of it was that multiple political figures weighed in, our state premier weighed in, sort of, you know, attacking really the views of the church and um, even you had the uh, – a federal opposition leader who's the leader of our conservative party sort of defended his rights but then still called the views of the church, you know, sort of horrific or something. I can't remember the exact quote. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the person then ended up um, resigning and, and they came out in the media that he'd been put to him that either he sort of leaves the church or leaves the position and he chose his church. So this created this whole sort of media furor here and I saw the newspaper as I went from my morning walk last week as this was all happening and it was said holy war mm. because you had the archbishop, um, Catholic archbishop of, of um, our diocese or, you know, Melbourne's in um, basically sort of uh, critiquing, had all different commentary from different, different figures. But really, you know, the sort of outplay of this was you had – you know, a lot of ask, people asking the question that if you are a you know Orthodox Jew, if you're if you're a Muslim, if you're a Catholic, if you're evangelical Christian, whatever, does this mean sort of public facing roles um, are, are not open to you anymore? Yes. Um, and you know all different questions around what is tolerance, what is religious rights, what are individual rights, um, what can organisations sort of demand? Is this religious discrimination and so on. So that's been the big discussion. And look, you know, uh, that's been our little local version of it. But we've seen different versions of this all over the place yes. in the world. Um, uh, and we've had people write into us 
um, yeah. just asking. We were going to mention it last week. But we had a lot to get through last week, so we just sort of didn't get onto it. But we thought we'd sort of um, dig into some of it today. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, it's kind of a catalyst for what we're talking about today. So we're going to go on a bit of a historical deep dive um, and I guess look at how, how, have we, how have we gotten to this point? How mm. do we um, as leaders in, in churches mm. um, or as Christian leaders mm. um, understand and navigate uh, living within a society where perhaps jobs are not available to mm. us because of our beliefs. Mm. Um, is this something that we should be concerned about? All of these questions, but um, to understand how we deal with them now, we need to take a little bit of a look in the past. So, yes. Mark, yes. start us off. Yes. Look, I think these things are always um, uh, – it's important to understand the context. So yes. i just like to do that in two ways. First okay, of sure. all – well, we're going to go on that journey. But I just also would like to say with this particular story, and I think often these sort of stories, and it could be around cancel culture or whatever, I always am suspect that there's more going on. Sure. Um, our local sport of AFL, which is a huge deal in this city, Australian Rules Football, um, literally as just as this was happening in the days before had been embroiled in a huge controversy around the treatment of Indigenous players. Mm. We're in a national conversation at the moment around um, the bringing into our constitution the recognition of Indigenous voice. And so that's the big sort of cultural focus at the moment, focus of the, of the government. Mm -hmm. And that was going on. And then the news broke that um, players at a particular club had been treated you know, quite terribly. We don't know yes. all of the results of that inquiry, but what came out was pretty devastating and devastating for the, the sport. And um, it was really a public relations absolute disaster mm. uh, at this time. And so I'm always just a little bit, and I'm, look, you know, I'm cynical around media, so I'm always a little bit suspicious. Linton Crosby, I think I've mentioned on here before, the Australian uh, political sort of pollster and strategist uh, invented something called the dead cat strategy. Mm. Um, and where basically if you don't want to talk about something or you want to change the conversation, you just slam a dead cat down on the table because people um, – well, then start talking about the dead cat. I just had a little bit of a feel of that. Um, yeah, okay. That all of a sudden everyone stopped talking about this terrible story about the treatment of Indigenous players for the AFL and all of a sudden everyone was talking about a particular church and a particular individual. Mm. I, that's speculation, um, but I just sort of know how these games play. And, and also too, it's just sort of strange. I just found it slightly strange that uh, you know, obviously there was some there's internal politics going on at this particular football club and so often when someone discovers something that was said in a sermon supposedly 13 years ago, mm. you know, who's looking for that? What's going on? You know, and that could be a journalist looking for that. It could be people doing, you know, from what's called oppositional research, you know, yeah, different yeah, candidates. Yeah. So just stuff like this doesn't just sort of happen. So, you know, like, so just wanted to catch often this stuff is in uh, just sort of cynical about how the media works. Wow. But that's not where we're going. We're going to actually go down um, a bit of a historical pathway of look really how we've gone from often Western societies being Christian societies when you mm -hmm. go a few hundred years ago to, to where we are now. So we've got a little bit of a, a roadmap that we're going to go through. Great. So let's start in a couple of hundred years ago Yes. Uh, when I guess – Western society was a culturally Christian state. Yes, yeah. What did that look like? So if, if you go back to, to Europe as a sort of Catholic state, you know, mm -hmm. before the Reformation, you primarily had, um, you know, the sort of Catholic 
uh, church as something where, you know, also Christianity sort of developed a response. You know, Leslie Newbigin talks about this, I think, in The Gospel and a Pluralist. Oh, and I think it's in The Open Secret where he, he, he talks about the fact that sort of Christianity was surrounded by the caliphate um, mm-hmm. of the Islamic world in, in, in North Africa and into Central Asia and the Middle East. And so in Islam, there was a fusion. There was no real difference between public life and, and private life in mm-hmm. terms of faith and, and between politics and religion, all was fused together. So you get this sort of emergence then of this sort of similar thing in Christianity where the state and the church, these things are fused. Um, and so you have states which are culturally Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where Christian values, Christian theology, you know, drives the the overarching operating principles of the state, its values. So that's I think most people get that. We won't spend much time on there. You could also have an Islamic state, a, yes. a Buddhist state. So effectively a state where there is no division between church and, and state. And there's still, you know, echoes of that in um mm. in Western yeah, yeah, politics, totally. right? Yeah. Um okay. So then we moved into a new era. Yes. So the second year, so what happens is you then have the Reformation in Europe mm-hmm. and the Reformation in Europe, obviously, you know, the rise of Protestantism, uh, you have this religious schism and the religious schism turns into a conflict, you know, mm-hmm. it goes from an ideological um, battle into an actual battle and there's a lot of life lost and you have different states aligning with Protestantism or Catholicism and all various alliances and different princes choosing this over that and you know lots of people die and and Europe really is sort of torn apart and so what you see begin to see at the end of the 1600s and beginning of 1700s is the political uh designing of a solution to this like uh, almost a social technology to deal with diversity of mm-hmm. uh, belief in a society. And really what that births is something we know now today as liberalism. Yeah. Now, just for our American listeners, often liberalism is heard of as left-wing. We're not meaning that here. We're meaning the classical sense of liberalism. So, for example, in Australia, our conservative party is called the Liberal Party. Mm. Um, so this is a solution where the government takes control uh, and agrees to be a sort of neutral in terms of, say, faith mm. and allows freedom of worship, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly. And uh, this is a way of creating a state where, so for example, Belgium could have French speakers and uh, Flemish speakers, Catholics mm-hmm. and Protestants, German minority, et cetera, et cetera, to exist together. And yeah, th- this is a form of dealing with diversity and where the state is neutral on these matters. <coughs> okay, so it's it, like it's that separation of church and state, right? Separation of church and state, right. yes. So in theory, everyone can <coughs> follow whatever faith they want to. Yes. It's not going to be interfered with by yes. the people in um, power. And, and families um, are sort of protected and different cultures. And also in Europe, it wasn't just religion. It was also different ethnic groups, you know, um, Jews. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, you could have had like minority language groups, yes. minority cultural groups. Um, that was the project of liberalism. Did liberalism always achieve this? No, but that's effectively what the, the goal was. Okay. So how did this kind of uh, era then change and when yeah. did it change? Again, uh, Leslie Newbegin talks about something that is sort of a bug in the system. Mm-hmm. And the bug in the system is that uh, you then had this separation between church and state 
But also what you had was a separation between what became facts and values or facts and belief, objective mm-hmm. truth and subjective truth. Yeah, and we've talked about that before. Yes. So, for example, um, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, that's your value. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's a subjective thing. But the government deciding to go war with this group, that's true, or the economic GDP of what this government says, that's a objective fact. And so you then beget a government which is trying to be neutral inadvertently then takes a position of authority and power because it's the arbiter of truth. Mm-hmm. if that makes sense, around certain facts. Now, many people understood this in, in liberalism, so they, they understood that tension, but it almost begins to be a bit of a growing uh, dynamic. So I would say the first stage is culturally Christian, the second stage is liberalism, mm-hmm. but now we're moving into what I would call late liberalism, where the contradictions of liberalism begin to emerge. Patrick Deenan wrote a book, um, I think it's The Failure of Liberalism. I think uh, I spoke about this on, I think, this cultural moment, um, and uh, you know what he argues is that liberalism was created to protect the rights of different groups: Catholics, Protestants, German-speaking minorities, or Italian-speaking minorities, or whatever. And um, but what began to happen is that it began to trend towards individual rights over the rights of groups and cultures. Mm-hmm. So any groups which then put a restraint on individual liberty was seen then the state would come down on the side of the individual versus the group. Can you give an example of that? Um, so, for example, um, in, in, in France, yep. um, uh, the wearing of the hijab has become mm-hmm. a significant um, cultural issue. Okay. So France obviously has a large Islamic community. Yep. And a large Salafi or traditional Islamic community who who would you know say that they should wear mm. the the hijab. So there's this big thing in in not just France but other European countries over. Hang on, but then the government also wants to necessity or wants to come down on the side of perhaps what about individual women within the Islamic community who don't want to wear the hijab sure. but are yep. facing cultural pressure. So what the French government's done, this has also happened in Quebec and I think it's happened in maybe a couple of maybe Switzerland there's talk of this or maybe it's already happened mm-hmm. and maybe some of the Scandinavian countries there's talk of this where well therefore when you come into a public space that is governed by the government, say public education or mm-hmm. you work at the local automotive you know, um, you know, like what do you call it? The oh, like um, license and registration, license and registration, or something. Oh, sure. That you should not wear your hijab. You can do it at home, but no woman should wear her hijab in the workplace, or where Jewish men can wear a kippah, or you can wear a cross. Okay. So that's 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 been passed in France. Right. So that would be the French state saying it's coming down on the side of individual rights, which mm-hmm. they would see the what they saw as the liberalism of the mm-hmm. French Republic guarantees individual things and that the public space should be neutral. Yes. So they're pushing that. Now, that's a bit different to what you'd see in, say, Australia, New Zealand or uh-huh. the United States. Um, but interesting, in Canada, you've got to say in the English, you know, Quebec has sort of pushed some of these rules as well, which mm. is interesting. So uh, that's where you'd see one example of that. So it's almost like the liberalism was based on tolerance but there seems to be an increased – Deenan would argue there's an increased intolerance of groups uh, who put restraints on individual rights. Okay. And so what what then happens? So you start to get culture clashes. Okay, yeah. Um, so, you know, you would then see – on one side, you might have feminists in France going, well, this is terrible. Women are wearing 
uh, hijabs and then you have other groups going, well, hang on, no, the hijab is a symbol. One group saying it's a symbol of repression another group saying it's a symbol of liberation. Yeah, okay. Then you've got something like happening at the moment where you've got in Iran. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, women who were removing the, the, the veil and then you've sort of had academics and people, you know, who've worn the veil as a, as a symbol of pushing back against Western hegemony. So, you know, you've mm-hmm. got politicians. So what is what is the veil then? Yeah, okay. <laughs> is, is it an objective truth? Is it a personal belief? And where does that play out? So, you know, this is, this is the tensions. Now, the other thing that emerges is um, – oh, sorry, you're going to ask a question. No, 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 I wasn't. Um, neoliberalism. Yes. So we're going to add another liberalism here. And as we talk about this, you rightly asked the question, what then is neoliberalism, which I didn't originally have in my scheme, but you rightfully pointed this out. Neoliberalism is an economic philosophy. So Mm. just as the vision that the state should be neutral and not interfere with people's personal beliefs, the belief then grows and it was was there, but it becomes particularly powerful, I would say, in the late 70s, early 80s, particularly aligned with people like uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, where the state should not interfere in the markets. The mm-hmm. markets should have freedom. Um, and so what this does is the markets then become supercharged. And uh, in a sense, capitalism is set free, not only under restrictions of the state. And this then creates this interesting force where things like religion, culture are sort of pushed down, pushed into the private space by liberalism. But the market unleashed then becomes an increasingly dominant social force. Yes. And things like Hollywood, things like consumerism. And then increasingly in the digital world, you see that the pro- it's almost like if you remove religion and culture from the public space and say it's neutral, the market rushes in and the market's not neutral. And particularly, you know, I, I would argue that the market tends to favour a kind of moral vision, which is individualistic hedonism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's been this digital means of intensified that. So that also aligned with almost what you saw in the 60s of almost this sort of personal liberalism, like yeah, let's okay. all get rid of anything, man, let's just rock around naked and dance in the park. So you've got multiple liberalisms at play here in the culture. Uh, but they're all intensifying. Now, neoliberalism also believed that, say, nation states shouldn't restrict capitalism or the market. Mm. And what that meant was that increasingly you saw neoliberalism birth a globalised world. Yes. Where jobs went offshore, where multinational corporations became huge, where we had in 2019 Google putting tremendous pressure on our country yeah. <laughs> because they wanted to regulate um, some of the things that Google did, Google did with their searches. So prob- is Google stronger than Australia? I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, so what you saw then is this inherent contradiction where late liberalism births neoliberalism which births globalization but the nation state which determines liberalism is then put under pressure by globalization yeah it no Mm. longer has that same jurisdiction over its Mm. people as it once did because it like it's offshoring everything exactly and and you've got these massive tech companies which are just have incredible global sway and Mm. you know the fact that today as we record this you've got elon musk sort of you know there's big controversy online is you know is elon musk talking to putin and you know so Mm -hmm. he's like a a corporate figure who's like become a politician internationally so and then just lastly the other thing with late liberalism is there's a sort of political science dynamic that as 
people rise up out of poverty and as conditions change, often their expectations grow. Okay. So as liberalism and neoliberalism created greater affluence, what that also meant was that there was a greater hunger for justice and mm-hmm. equality. Now, as that grows, part of that then starts to look at the foundations of the liberal state mm-hmm. and people may look at things like slavery or sexism or they begin to question the very foundations of the liberal state, which enabled them to ask those questions in the first place. It's a fascinating right. yes. uh, conundrum. Dynamic, yeah. So late liberalism is like it's, – it's like a, a kid – who's growing – it's like a teenager who's still wearing the clothes he had as a 12-year-old. He's bursting past them but still wearing the clothes. It's an awkward, pressure-filled stage. What an excellent picture <laughs> that was. Um, so you wouldn't say that that's where we are though, right? No. We have moved into another phase. Now, I think a lot of people think we're here. We'll come yes. back to that. Yeah, and okay. a lot of a lot of discipleship, just a foretaste of where we're going. Yes, still operates as if we're at stage one, culturally Christian, stage yeah. two, liberalism and neutral, or three, yeah. late liberalism. Yes. But but we're in a new stage. And you are calling that stage, or it is called hyper-liberalism. Yeah, th- this this is a stage from, this is a, a term from John Gray. And um, in fact, I've got a quote from here. John Gray is a British philosopher. He says this, it would be easy to say that liberalism has now been abandoned. Practices of toleration that used to be seen as essential to freedom are being deconstructed and dismissed as structures of repression and any idea or beliefs that stand in the way of this process banned from public discourse. Judged by the old-fashioned standards, this is the opposite of what liberals have stood for. But what has happened in higher education is not that illiberalism has been supplanted by some other ruling philosophy. Instead, a hyper-liberal ideology has developed that aims to purge society of any other trace of other views of, of any trace of other views of the world. So, what he's saying here is that. We started by saying liberalism was an attempt for the state to sort of be neutral and to be like the referee. Yeah. But what happens when the referee starts to get more involved in the game? What happens when the referee feels that in order to, you know, it starts to make strategic decisions on how teams should be playing? So it begins to grow. So in order to maintain a a society of tolerance, it has to be intolerant of tolerance. So there's a, there is a, a sort of strain that you see in Western thought. So you go back to the French Revolution, the French revolutionary who was in charge of the city of Strasbourg, uh, a, a revolutionary called Saint-Just, he actually said, we had this thing of, we will force you to be free. And with the French Revolution, you know, particularly under Napoleon, you had the Grand Army of France, which saw as a republic, mm-hmm. going out, conquering other nations in order to free them. And individuals. So there's an element where liberalism goes from something neutral and and passive to something active, and it, it expands what it, it becomes the arbiter of justice versus just the referee, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. Um, so we've seen that. So it's going to this hyper liberal stage, and you begin to then see it trying to do with the problem of individual versus group rights, mm-hmm. but particularly looking at that around going, well, we'll, we'll guarantee. Uh, group rights, but we'll guarantee them of group rights who are minorities. Yes. Now, sometimes that's very clear. Yes. But then sometimes it's confusing. Yeah. So, for example, if you've got two migrant communities of Azeris and Armenians mm-hmm. and they both see as the other as oppressing them and there's a war back in, in, in their countries, who does the state come down on the side of? Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so, so hyper-liberalism uh, grows. All right, so this sounds like the kind of state that we're in, 
yes. right? Hyper, hyper-liberalism and is probably indicative of what happened with yes. um, the CEO of Essendon Football Club. Yes. Yes. So I think you're right. So I think we're, we're – where this describes well where we are now. You can see yes. the government and you can see even the heads of different businesses, corporate entities, again, yeah. think, of, think of neoliberalism, um, making these sort of rulings around things that actually some people would argue are more in the personal space. And, yes. and, and you know, so it's a more assertive form of liberalism, absolutely. So would you say that this is inevitably where we're going? Yeah. Okay. So a lot of people hear this, and and even you could just see in some of the reactions here in Australia or in Melbourne um, with this case of people like, oh wow. Okay. Is this is this where we're going? Mm. Um, maybe. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. my solution, because I think there's a number of current tremendous pressures on hyperliberalism. Mm-hmm. So like some of the ways that people see this, they go, this is the inevitably the way things are going to go. Now go back to one of the, the rebuilders modes, frameworks of understanding culture. Yeah. Just because something's happening now does not mean that in 10 years you're just going to see more of the same thing happening in greater intensity. Yeah, okay. That actually events happen and conditions change mm-hmm. and Nicholas Nassim Taleb's black swans come along, which is unforeseen events which change the direction of things. Uh, so, uh, first of all, what I would say is what happens in hyperliberalism, and this creates a pressure on hyperliberalism, mm-hmm. is that that you have this phase under, I would say, late liberalism where there seemed to be no morality. You know, there was all these comedies where people were playing with like, what can we joke about now? Yeah. I think I always think of the show Jackass. I think I've talked about that before where they're like, yeah. just jumping off things and like – Oh, no, stapling themselves. Um, there was we were actually cl- uh, clearing some books um, uh, yesterday, and there was a book there that um, uh, uh, "Female Chauvinist Pigs" by Ariel Levy. And in that book, that was written in that period, and she's almost like feminism now is just seemingly like merged with just raunch culture, where it's just like indistinguishable from sort of almost pornographic culture. Do you know what I mean? Is, is this where we're at now? Is, mm. the, is this the future? So it was almost like there was this complete removal of any morality. And I remember at the time thinking there's going to be a moralistic backlash. Yeah. So you almost got this point where hyper-liberal culture is an attempt to address some of the seemingly lack of morals that late liberalism had. So what you tend to get is at moments of power, elites or bureaucracies um, often have to come up with a kind of morality. Mm -hmm. Now, in in Chinese history – um, when China went through lots of chaotic periods and had different ethnic and, and religious minorities and, and civil wars and pressures, uh, one of the ways the Chinese state dealt with this was creating this sort of Confucian bureaucracy and they called them the mandarins. And so you had this mandarin, you had to go and study in a particular way, you got this worldview, it was really difficult and then once you had been formed and shaped in this particular way around a particular worldview, then you could get particular kinds of government jobs. Okay. Now I think something like that's happening again. So you have a kind mm. of mandarin class uh, who increasingly align with some of the moral values of hyper-liberalism. So this is why I think people are going, well, hang on, can't I get that job? Well, that's because hyper-liberalism is trying to deal with a problem. That problem is the problem of hyperdiversity. Okay. So <laughs> so <laughs> liberalism wow. liberalism is a container for diversity, Patrick Deenan says. Mm-hmm. Liberalism is a social 
technology to deal with diverse populations, multicultural populations. But there's a point where you get to what now often is called sociologists and anthropologists call hyperdiversity, mm. where, so for example, I mentioned before, say Belgium, you know, I don't know, 300 years ago is dealing with French speakers, Flemish speakers, Catholics and Protestants, maybe a small Jewish minority. That's it. You look at modern Australia today, you're dealing with hundreds of different cultural groups. That's just subcultures. Yes. Many ideologies, ideologies incredibly multicultural, and just even say uh, Iranian people, you've got Iranian Kurds, you've got Iranian Christians, you've got yeah. Iranian Shia, you've got there's Iranian Sunni, there's Armenians, there's you know all these different groups. So as things get more diverse, they get more complex. This is something yes, that we've, we've was, talked about. Yeah, here. I was going to say um, in terms of looking at the networked world, you you have this diversity of groups, but then you also have these intersections of this, yes, the yes. diversities of groups. And that's where yes. that complexity is because one person doesn't fit neatly within yes. one pocket. You've got one person fitting neatly within five pockets yes. that another person fits in two of those pockets and then three other ones, you know. Yes. Like, so, so one solution that critical theory and particularly intersectionality, which is sort of a, a continuum of, of critical theory, is the, the 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 concept of intersectionality, which you just named. Okay. So they say it's not just your identity, it's the intersection of the different identities mm -hmm. you carry. Now that's also married with um, what I talked about in hyperliberalism where it's also, well, who is the most oppressed? So there's a sense of yeah. like who's the most oppressed. Now – intersectionality attempts to deal with the problem of diversity, but it doesn't know how to deal with the problem of hyperdiversity. Mm -hmm. So, for example, it normally looks at sexuality, gender, race, etc. But, again, what happens if an, an Azeri and an Armenian? Yes. So if there's two Azeri-Armenian women, who, who is more oppressed here? Mm -hmm. So you start to get more of those problems in an increasingly diverse world. And because most of the solutions and intersectional thoughts come out of universities in the United Kingdom or the United States, they're inevitably programmed with the prejudices of those those, yes. those institutions, even when they're trying to escape them. They still, even claiming to be non-Western, will still be programmed by Western thought. Yes. Um, so, so you have this issue that as things get more hyper-diverse, mm -hmm. you have to grow the bureaucracy. You have to grow the rules. Liberalism has to come up with more content to define what morality is going to look like in order to pursue its culture of tolerance. Yes. The, the referee, you know, like you might be watching a sport, a game of sport, and, you know, they say the best kind of referee is when you don't know they're even there. But if the referee is just sort of continually blowing the whistle, continually sending people off, it, and just the game, oh, this is rubbish, this is stop-start, that's what begins to happen. And when yeah. you're watching a game like that, people get annoyed. So one of the things is people see that particularly also, I would, I would say that the sort of hyper-liberalism that has grown up jettisoned something because it comes out of this Western story and it yeah. jettisoned traditional left-wing views of class. So people talk about critical theory as cultural Marxism. Mm -hmm. It really moved beyond Marx. In Marx or as the, the, the main engine driving history as the clash between different classes. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of people saying because of globalization, hang on, okay, so this person over here is getting a job because they're the intersection of these personalities. Well, I'm, I'm a bloke, but I'm super poor. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay. And, and so you see this all this this backlash, and some of it's legitimate, some of it's illegitimate, but you see this increasing populist backlash in the world to what is seen as the failures of hyperliberalism. So you see this in we talked about Brazil, Jair mm -hmm. Bolsonaro, Donald Trump, we just saw Maloney uh, elected in Italy, Sweden Democrats. I predict in the next 12 months we're going to see so many more of these results as we go into increasing economic difficulty. Um, so part of the problem is that hyperliberalism then faces what it sees as an illiberal populist right and then pushes deeper to its side. That pushes the populist right to mm. deeper to its side. Both keep going more extreme and then make themselves seemingly more illegitimate for the general population with whom they're trying to build a rapport with. So all of that is in play. I'll just add one more since we're there. <laughs> and so, for example, just on hyperdiversity, there's an interesting book that came out in India. Um, I haven't read it, but I've read stuff about it. But it's this big thing in India at the moment. It's called Snakes in the Ganya, uh, and, uh, or, yeah, Ganya. And it's written by Rajiv Malhota and Vijaya Viswanathan. Uh, and what they are, they're both two people who worked in the US, Indians who went to the US, worked there for a period and they've come back to India. And what they're saying is that the post-colonial hyper-liberal thing in the US is actually acting as a form of colonialism in India. Right. So people who have studied in the US or studied in Britain who have sort of taken on hyper-liberal, the people who have been formed in American and English universities almost to be in that Mandarin class. Yes. <laughs> they come back and then take positions in India yeah. and they're saying they're bringing those values with them and this is undermining the project of the Indian Hindu civilizational state. Right. Um, uh, so you see this fascina fascinating thing where post-colonial studies are now being seen in other countries as colonialists. So this is an example of how difficult it is to do all this in a globalised, diverse world. Hyperliberalism is under tremendous, tremendous pressure. Lastly, as we've also been saying, uh, that there is also, I think, going to be in the next 12 months as the world heads into a recession. Head of the IMF this morning was talking about we're heading into a recession, energy crisis. Uh, you're going to see these sort of more ideological issues. The state, people are going to go, let's go, we don't want you to be an arbiter of you know, morality, just make the trains work. I mm -hmm. can't heat my home. A, a loaf of bread costs five times what it used to. So ten, when that tends to happen, so the whole hyper-liberal period we went through was during a time of energy abundance and economic growth. We're now heading into a period, I think, of possibly stagflation, stagna economic stagnation and inflation, energy, energy scarcity. And I predict that people will be, populations and electorates will be demanding of governments, bureaucrats, a more basic form of government that delivers yeah, okay. stuff. But the problem is you're going to have a bureaucratic Mandarin class who have not been trained in that worldview at all by their forming institutes, institutions. Whew. All right. So with that in mind, what does that, uh, I guess, mapping out of this history, so from a culturally Christian state to liberalism to late liberalism to hyper-liberalism, what does that mean for us here yes. as Christian leaders, you know, looking at the future of um, employment, looking at mm. um, the the people that we're leading, mm. what does that mean for us here? 
So I think there's three possibilities. Sure. Number one is this trend does keep continuing mm-hmm. and maybe things get more scarce in the world, but you've got a whole sort of cachet of leaders at the top of big business and government and local government and, you know, uh, who are formed in these ways and will assert this more and it will mean that Christians will increasingly struggle to gain employment. Interestingly, uh, in, in not, not gain employment in any job, but certain yes. kinds of jobs. Sure. Now, we interviewed David Yeganatsa um, from Elam Ministries mm-hmm. a couple episodes ago and he talked about in Iran that often what persecution is, and he made this comment, I thought it was really interesting, he said, "Often per- I'm paraphrasing him, but he said often persecution is not that someone goes to jail mm. or, I don't know, they're beaten by the secret police, that the persecution that many people feel in the persecuted church is actually you don't have a chance at social advancement. Yeah. So... Um, uh, you may not get certain jobs. And it was interesting. There was an article where they went to the church who was part of this controversy. A local paper went to the church who was part of this controversy on, and interviewed people coming out of the church service. And they interviewed a young Moldovan couple. Mm. Uh, Moldova was part of Romania when it was part of the Iron Curtain. And they said, oh, yeah, this was like what it used to be like in during the Russian times. Oh, sorry, not the Russian times, the Soviet times. Mm. You just couldn't get certain jobs if you're a Christian. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So it could be that... That may be part, that's normative. What people need to realize, that is normative for most Christians in history. We, and if you go back, we've discipled people for uh, stage, we, I think most people realize we're not in a culturally Christian space anymore Yeah. Uh, in the West, but we're more have discipled people for, hey, it's neutral. Yeah. Or we've discipled people for late liberalism. Yeah, the primary thing that's going to shape you is actually the culture and Hollywood and its values and consumerism and digital stuff. So how do you form counterformation against that? Mm-hmm. Now that's that I believe that. Yeah. But we've not prepared people well. In fact, we've almost said to people, hey, if you can work out this way of interfacing with culture and being a good witness at work and relating to people really well and not being judgmental, blah, 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 at work, you can be anything. I mean, I spent the last 20 years being at conferences where often they'd have someone get up and who's in government or Hollywood or killing it in some secular field and we need Christians in those secular spaces. I've not heard anything where people were preparing people for if as a Christian you may not get the job you want. Yeah. Now, that's part of our discipleship. So that's option number one. Number two is all of these contradictions implode <laughs> and we head in a very different direction. Okay. Um, and you just need to look at countries like Poland and Hungary who not that long ago were communist and now are almost cult- returning to some sort of civilizational, Christ- culturally Christian right-wing mm-hmm. uh, thing. Um, or the reality is it's probably going to be a mix of both. Okay. That's what I put my bet on. Yeah. Um, so I think we need to disciple people well, and I think this is perhaps something we'll pick up in the next episode, Yeah. Um, that being a Christian is going to have an increasing cost, which is not just people mocking you or you not being able to do what everyone does at the work party afterwards, uh, but that this is what Jesus said. There'll be, there'll be pressure in the yeah. world. There'll be pressure against different churches and uh, and also, you know, I think the, the the cause of religious freedom as well is also key. You know, I, I, it's interesting as well. Like it, it's not just something for the church, but also this is something for different religious minorities as well yes. in the world. Um, so I'm not sure which of those three it'll be. As I said, I think it's probably going to be a combination of both. But I think leaders preparing people because there's an anger that can come that can go to bad places yeah. when we're not given a biblical worldview. This is what Jesus predicted. So we can, and again, we'll, we'll talk about that more next week. But I yeah. think that that's how I'd end that. 
Well, thank you for mapping that out for us, Mark. Um, And we look forward to sharing more in our next episode. If you are not already a subscriber and you would like to be so that you get a list of the the books and resources that were mentioned during this episode, you can head to rebuilders.co and subscribe there. We'd love to have you. See you next time.